I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 68. Today in the show, we're talking fall food plots, and joining us is food plot expert, John Cooner. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, brought to you by Sitka Gear. Now, it is mid-August today, and for me and many other whitetail hunters out there, that means it's fall food plot season. So, with that being the case, today we've got John Cooner, a food plot expert from Whitetail Institute, on the show with us to fill us in on everything we need to know to make sure our fall food plots are as beneficial to our deer and deer hunting as possible. But before we get to all that... Dan and I do have some pretty exciting updates from this past weekend. We were busy these past few days, weren't we, Dan? I would say so. Uh, cameras and tree stands mm-hmm. and the hot, hot heat. I was going to say, that was a pretty big oh part God. of it. It was, it was t- terrible. I mean, when you, when you get out of bed and it's 82, 3 degrees at you know 7 in the morning, you know it's going to be a, 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 just a nasty day. Yeah. And it seems like... I don't know about you, but I never pick days that are like 65 and cloudy to go right. work on tree stands or anything. It always seems that's 90 degrees and sunny. I never right. get the good days. Right. The previous week, he, the previous weekend here in uh, southern Iowa, it was like a high of 76 degrees and, you know, 76, maybe 80 degrees. And there was very low humidity and it was just gorgeous out. And then the next weekend, it's like mid 90s with 80% humidity. It sucked. I'm, I, I just I just was dripping sweat, and you get to the point, I don't know if you've ever done this, where you have your, your hand saw or your pole saw, and you're working a, a pretty thick branch, and you can just feel the energy drain out of your body where you, you know, if it was cooler out, you, you, didn't, you wouldn't have to stop, mm-hmm. but it, then you have to stop, and you have to catch your breath, and you're just like, oh my God. 
It's like yeah. your body's getting ready to overheat. Or like when you're 20 feet up in the tree hanging on by your tree belt and you're screwing in a screw-on peg and it's like one of those, it's like the 20th one you've put in and it's like every turn it's just like slowly another piece of your soul dies. That's kind of what I felt. <laughs> but regardless of us, you know, basically complaining about how hot <laughs> and terrible it was, we, me and you both, have... All this hard work is meant for something, and our trail cameras showed that this weekend. That's the truth. We had a good weekend for camera pulls. I finally got to yeah. pull a camera and have some good news after months of hearing about yours, so I'm glad I finally have something to talk about now. Dude, you got some studs. Like, yeah, JJ and uh, Junkyard. I can't wait to see what Junkyard looks like full-grown. He's, he's, uh, he's a toad. Yeah, they're, they're. I got, you know, as you saw online... Four of my bucks from last year are back, and three of them are definite, definite shooters. And and really, all three are pushing Boone and Crockett. Two of them are definitely over Boone or will be over Boone and Crockett. One of them's pushing it. Yeah. Um, you know, the the infamous Glenn. I didn't. My issue with my cameras is I think I told you is that I had two cameras out there in Southern Ohio. You know, I finally got to go down there, and one of them took no pictures the way they're supposed to. It just, some kind of malfunction where it took a picture three times a minute, every minute, all day. And so it's just weeds. And then like for a minute or a couple couple minutes every day, there's some does pass through and that was it. Through like all of May and then I had like nothing. So like worthless camera there, depressing. And then my second camera, it was working properly, but because there was beans this year, there were just a lot more deer in the area, a lot more does in the area than there were last year. So Last year, I put a trophy rock out and some stuff like that in May, and then it was still there in August when I came back and checked cameras. So there were bucks visiting those cameras all the way through while I was gone. But this year, there was just a lot more deer in the area, so that trophy rock was gone in a month or so, and the various you know different things I put out there. Um, and so once like end of June, early July showed up, like the buck sightings dropped off dramatically. I think I only had bucks hit the camera. Um, three days in July and then I have no buck sightings in August. So all my good pictures are from those three times that the bucks rolled through in July, even though there was nothing there really to bring them in. Um, so now I've got new stuff out in front of the cameras. I'm expecting and hoping that I'll get all these pictures now fully grown. But the point of me explaining all that was that Glenn showed up on July 3rd and that's the last picture I have of him. So, you know, he's got way, way, way more growth to do. Yeah. Um, in the pictures that I saw. So, you know, he's wider than he was last year. He's got longer brow tines than he had last year. I think he's got a little more mass, but I still don't know what that full tine length is going to be. So I think, you know, he should be, you know, bigger than he was last year, which is which is pretty big. Um, yeah. But either way, he's an awesome five-year-old, and I've got tons of history with him. And then, like you mentioned, Junkyard, he's a toad again. He's got triple brow tines on one side, doubles on another, all sorts of stickers all over the bases, splits on both his G2s. Um, just big, big frame and huge body. He's at least six, if not older. Uh, so he's a stud. And then JJ, like you mentioned, he kind of gets like the, the shock and awe award. I feel like the yeah. first time I saw him, I was just like, whoa. Just his yeah. frame is so tall and, I don't know, it's just like impressive visually. He's just one of those deer that's like, dang, that looks too big for his head. <laughs> exactly. I, when I look at it, I, I'm just like, it almost looks like one of those fisheye cameras where the center yeah. of the screen is way close. You know, everything. It's like, 
objects in the mirror closer than they appear type thing. So, like his main beams are crazy. Yeah, he's nuts. And that's he's a perfect example of why it is a good idea. You know, if you're wanting to see older deer, bigger deer, etc., letting him go from three to four really does make a big difference. I mean, JJ was a three-year-old last year, and when we saw him, we were like, wow, he's got a frame kind of like Jawbreaker, kind of wraps up. Mm-hmm. So we called him JJ, Jawbreaker Jr. Um, and he was probably a mid-something 130s last year. Yeah. And then uh, this year, you know, as you saw, he just he exploded. He put on like I don't know, thirty to forty inches somewhere in there. I mean, he he yeah. jumped big time. So he's a, he's a stud. He's a really nice four year old. So I say those three bucks for sure. I'm excited about. And um, there's a couple other really nice up and comers. And we drove around the first two nights. I drove around one night and sat in the field one night. And then my buddy Corey drove around both nights. And we saw. You know, Corey the first night saw two booners and a bunch of other like 130s, 40s and stuff. And the next night we saw three booners and another like five 140s, 160s. So just yeah. lots of big deer. It's just cool. It's way different than when I drive around in Michigan. You know, yeah. it's just there's deer everywhere, lots of mature deer. It's just cool. So right, right. I had a blast. But um, I'll tell you what, you did kind of steal my thunder a little bit. Because <laughs> I thought, you know, for sure I've got some like 180 class bucks. I'm going to, you know. Yeah. Pull into the lead here, and now you've got you've got some big old suckers, including one who, I think you know, if it's up to people to vote, they're going to say he looks the biggest, because um, he's just he's very 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 impressive. Well, it's even with his short his shorter time length, it's kind of hard to lose when you have fifteen scorable points. You know what I mean? It he's just, he has a ton of points, and his main beams are really long, just crazy wide. Yeah, so there you know him, and then Mark Kenyon. He's up there too. I mean, he is. Although, I mean, he's got eight points on one side that are they're all t- ten ten ish inches, ten plus inches. So, and plus, I don't know. And he's 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 got fourteen scoreable points, I think, too. So, all those splits. Yeah, all those splits. You know, and he's got the the brow tines and that deep deep fork down at the. Um, his left G2, right? His left G2, yep. And then he's got an inside point coming off his main beam on that same side. So, yeah, he, his left side's very impressive. And he's got a split on his G2 on his right side. And both brows have uh, kickers off him. And uh, he's he's pretty big as well. But, I mean, I, I haven't even posted pictures of one, two, three, four other bucks that are probably going to make my hit list because they're five, four and five years old or older. I think that's the coolest thing right there, what you just right. said, is that, you know, as much as we get excited and it's fun to talk about cool antlers and big antlers and everything, yeah. just having old deer to hunt yeah. is really cool. And being able to see some of these deer mature year after year and get to know a couple of these deer and know that you've got an older buck out there who's smart, crafty, and a challenge to hunt, I mean, that... That geeks me out. And this is, you know, this is fun talking about the antler size and, and all this stuff. But we have to remember that the, it, antler size really isn't what it's all about. I mean, we're having this bet and we're, um, you know, saying, oh, these bucks are studs. But Ryan Iberg, you know, he's going to be maybe in the 145 range as an eight pointer. And he's the oldest deer that I have on the property. And he's a, he's, his huge body, low score, and, but I would shoot him in a heartbeat. And if you did, you, I know you would be, and you should be incredibly proud to kill a deer like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I, no doubt. So so I flip him through the pictures, right, and I see him. You know, he's got that back, those back legs, 
the issues. Um, the issues there. Now he has, and I'm not joking, the size of a softball type of mast on his face. Just like a tumor kind of thing? I, it's like, if you look at it, it looks like someone punched him in the face. And he's got this, it's so swollen, it's pushing his eye kind of forward a bit. Oh, jeez. So I'm just like, oh my God, is he even going to make it to hunting season? I don't know. The, yeah, these animals are so freaking tough. And what they ha- I mean, the mosquitoes were so bad this uh this weekend down in the in the river bottoms and in some of the wetter parts of the timber, I could barely and bug spray wasn't doing it a, a damn thing. And me and Ben uh, from Huntera, he came out and filmed me and helped me a little bit, and uh, oh, we were getting destroyed with the heat, the bugs, and and these guys are out in that all year round, and then they're in the complete opposite conditions in the winter. So I get I give the deer props, yeah, just for being and living the way they live. And that's the truth. We uh, we complain about a hot day hanging stands, but they're out there doing it all the time, right. with big furry coats on. So exactly, I wouldn't want to do that. But uh, but yeah. yeah. So here here's the question we got to resolve real quick before we get John on the line. Is we both now have a couple giant bucks to right. put into the trail camera competition. And, you know, when I'm looking at some of these, me and my buddy Corey, Corey especially, he's very, very good at estimating scores of deer based on, he's really math, he's just all about numbers. He's a big number guy. And so he estimates all these different lengths and mass measurements, and he's incredibly accurate. Like, over the last, like, five, six years with him, he's Mm -hmm. almost always, always, always within five inches. Like, he's never off very far. So we went and did some estimates based on trail camera pictures for the two couple bucks that you and me have been kind of expecting to be our bigger deer. And we're really close. Yeah. Um, so the, the issue is, you know, how are we going to be able to tell who wins? You know, do we, do we choose someone as a third party estimator and, and just go with their estimate or do we put it up for listener vote or do we, I don't know. I mean, what are your thoughts? I don't, I don't really know what I think is the best idea for us to determine the winner. Now that we actually have a close competition, I kind of figured it'd be like, There'll be one deer that no doubt about it wins by a landslide, but right. we're, right. you know, I think we're kind of neck and neck to a degree here. Right. I, and I agree, I agree that. Um, so here's what I was thinking. There's two options. One, we put it to a vote online, right? All the, you know, say, Hey, which bucks are bigger, you know, and have your biggest buck versus my biggest buck. And, uh, and just, have a vote off or we reach out to all of the quote unquote professionals of the world. Like all the people from prior podcasts, the people who really know who, who live this every day, who, who know what they're talking about. And we send them an email and we just, you know, Hey, Bill Winky, what, who, which buck in your opinion is bigger or, you know, Dan Infall. Or all those guys, all the people, the Levikoskis of the world. And we reach out to them via email and just be like, hey, we're having a bet on the Wired to Hunt podcast. Um, would you like to give your thoughts on on which, which buck is bigger uh, from a completely unbiased point of view? Duke it out. Ooh. I lost what you said there for just two seconds, Dan. You said we're going to ask these people for their opinions, right? Yep, ask all the like the, the past podcast uh, guests. Yeah, yeah. So what about this? 
what if we do both? Okay. And, 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 and what I mean is what if we reach – what if we pick – You know, we'll, we'll think about a couple guests to email. We'll email a couple guests. We'll get their estimates or their, their guests. And then I'll put together a blog post that includes their guesses – and then mm-hmm. asks for the readers to make their vote. And so the final decision will be in the readers' and listeners' hands, but mm-hmm. they'll be able to see what the three or four or five experts said their guess was. So they can use that as kind of a guidance for them then to think, okay, this is what Winky said, this is what so-and-so said, this is what so-and-so said, and then maybe use that to then look at the pictures too and say, okay, well, maybe I see what they're saying here, and then they can have a, a, maybe a little bit of an educated guess based on some additional feedback too. What do you think about that? Yeah, that's fine with me, man. All right. Well, here's then the one other thing is we do need to wait because we still have you know cameras to pull and stuff to yep. check. Anything um, can happen in, in, at your Iowa property. Yeah. So, I guess in you know a month or two, month six weeks, something like that. Next time I can get those cameras, four weeks, five weeks, something like that. We'll finally settle this one once and for all. But I right. think uh, if there's anything we can agree on, it's that there's some serious bucks for us to go after this year. Oh yeah, I'm. If I wasn't sleeping enough already, I'm not sleeping now. I am. I'm so freaking jacked. When I was looking at when I when I came into that, uh, started seeing pictures of that big wide buck who I I have pictures of from the previous year. Oh, you do? I yeah. know that. Yep, I do. Uh, it's actually on my Nine Finger Chronicles Facebook page, uh, like the 2014 third card pull, and it's the same buck on 100 percent. For sure, just with four more points, two two more points on each side. Wow, he's an incredible deer. Yeah, he is. He's gigantic, and Mark Kenyon, and um, you know, and I th- I think Mark Kenyon scoring gonna score in the one eighties too. Man, giant. Yeah. So, so we'll see, man. You, you're gonna run down to Ohio. I take it uh, probably in two or three weeks, and yep. and check out. Check them out before we head out to Idaho. Yeah, I guess yep. I'm gonna. I don't know if I'm gonna have time to check my trail cameras uh, in between now and then, but I got fresh batteries and a lot of my. Uh, <laughs> funny story: We're walking through the cornfield, and uh, I come up to an old mineral site that I, for completely forgot about, and I had a trail camera sitting there all year round, <laughs> and so I had it. the The first picture on there was from November third of this year oh my gosh and the last picture was from april 4th so it captured i had a uh, eight gig card in there and it captured like five thousand six thousand pictures of all this it was nuts it was it was cool just you know i had strutting turkeys on it i had (laughs) i had like young bucks fighting i had does i had cattle i had bobcats it was pretty sweet to go through and I have another trail camera now, so. Yeah. <laughs> it's a nice little surprise. Exactly. That's funny. So uh, I'll share one funny story from my weekend. and It might be just weird. but <laughs> So me and my buddy Corey went down to Ohio. We're cheap. We share a hotel room whenever all us guys go down there together. So, you know, we, we were up that first night. We pulled cameras, and we're up really late because I had, like, 15,000 pictures to go through or something. So we were up really late looking at bucks. Well, that night, of course, I'm laying in bed, falling asleep, just dreaming about all these deer, thinking about all these deer. The next morning, the alarm goes off. I roll over. Corey's on the bed across the way. He kind of rolls over. Just, he kind of mumbles, good morning. And literally, he says good morning. And the first word that both of us say, we both look at each other, and we both just go, bucks. 
<laughs> it was hilarious. Like, it was just ridiculous. So I won't share any more stories about me waking up in the same bedroom with another guy, but that was a pretty funny one. So, <laughs> so with that said, I think um, now we should turn our attention to fall food plots, which is something I'm working on right now. Um, I've got a lot of food plot work to do in the next two weeks, and I think a lot of other guys do too. So John is a, a great resource on all this kind of stuff, so I'm excited to talk to him. I've talked to him a lot in the past, a few times in the past, and um, he's an interesting guy to talk to all the time. So are you ready to, uh, to give John a call? Let's call him up. All right, let's do it. Quickly, though, before we get John on the phone, we need to pause briefly for a word from our partners at Sitka Gear. Now, continuing on with our weekly segments, this week I wanted to ask our resident Sitka expert, Dennis Zuck, exactly why it is that Sitka only makes their hunting gear available in Optifade camo patterns. So here's what he had to say. Um, yeah, so all of our camouflage, all of our products for that matter, um, we try to make sure that we make claims to things we, we feel good about and we try to use, honestly, what we believe to be the best solution to the problem statement, which is concealment. Um, you know, there's a lot of, you know, there's fancy words like isoluminance. It talks about the blobbing effect at distances and stuff like that. But, um, when you look at a mimicry pattern, you know, you know, might they work? Have you killed an animal wearing them? You probably have. And in certain environments, that's probably a fantastic solution. But when you start looking at, well, how does that product look as I get it further away from it? And, and do I turn into a big dark thing in the woods? Or how does that look if I, you know, I, I'm in an Aspen tomorrow where I was in a cedar the day before? You know, those kind of shifts and variances, which we all have to make, we all change our locations, our stands, the properties we might hunt. We believe that, you know, the, the scientific development of Optifade is a better overall solution to addressing what all of us do as hunters. If you'd like to learn more about Optifade Camo or Sick of Gear products, visit SitkaGear.com. And now, let's get John on the line. All right, with us on the line now is John Cooner. Welcome to the show, John. How's it going, guys? Going well. Me and Dan have just been talking the last couple of minutes about how geeked out we are about the upcoming season. We just checked some trail cameras, and things are looking good. So we are we're pretty excited. Um, oh man, me too. It's uh, it's we're getting the bug down here too. It's uh, the phones are ringing off the hook, and people are definitely seeming to turn uh, turn from uh, summer fishing to fall hunting. Yeah, it's that time of year. I uh, <laughs> I've got the I call it the summer summer buck fever. It hits me pretty hard about this time hey, of year. Sure. So, you know that being said, we're we're excited about all things deer hunting. But for a lot of guys right now, it's it's food plot season for those guys putting in fall food plots. I've got a lot of work myself going on. I just sprayed last week. I've got some work in the next week or so to to get some things disked under. And and we're gonna be talking about that with you because I know you've got an amazing amount of experience and insight on this topic, but. For those out there who aren't familiar with who you are and what you do, can you share with our listeners just a little bit about you know your experience with food plots and with the Whitetail Institute and, and what you're doing today? Uh, yes, I guess I've, I've hunted all my life. Uh, I got started with food plots at a pretty young age. And uh, my first, I've, I've been with the Whitetail Institute now for quite a few years. Uh, I started, uh, I guess, uh, the first contact with the Whitetail Institute was when I was uh, I don't know, in my in my 30s or 40s, and I had worked up a little uh, food plot blend that I, I could put in, in rows of planted pines, which, is, by the way, is a killer setup. I still use it today. Uh, and I tried one of their products that uh, that uh, would do the same thing, our no-plow, our no and it did better than anything that I could have put in there, and that was my first uh, 
uh, first connection with them, and things just moved along. And after a few years, I ended up uh, coming here to work, and I've been here for, gosh, I guess 11, 12 years. Wow. So what exactly do you do for them now? Oh, a little bit of everything. My title is Director of Special Projects because I'm sort of like, I don't know if you've seen that commercial with Mikey. You know, they say, give it to Mikey, let him try it. I'm, I'm, sort, of, I'm sort of Mikey here. I do everything from uh, talking to customers on the phone, maybe doing a TV show, and, uh, you know, helping just an- answering questions, writing articles, lots of different things. I've even gotten into the uh, – they've tossed me into the outdoor photography and videography part of it. And uh, wow. I'll tell you, I'm 57 years old, and uh, after trying to learn this, I now understand why – my 85-year-old mother refuses to even try to turn on a computer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's understandable. That stuff can be tough for all of us. I, uh, I certainly had my share of tech difficulties over the years, too. Um, so that said, you've been working with Food Plots a long time. You've been working with the Whitetail Institute a long time. I'm curious, just, you know kick things off here in a little bit of an interesting foot with all of your experiences with food plots all your hunting in and around them is there any hunt on a food plot or near a food plot or those you know revolved around a food plot that stands out to you as your most memorable food plot related hunt for a deer uh yes i probably so uh actually it was uh it, it was uh in a crop field it was a, a soybean field that had been uh, recently harvested it's been about oh, 15 20 years ago and I can make a long story very short if I can, uh, but it was that time of morning when you're looking through your binoculars and you could just start to see a little bit of light, and it's changing so quickly that you, you know, I looked, I had forgotten some of the truck, run back to get it, came back, and was glass in this field, and thought I saw something move, and stopped and blinked my eyes and looked, and I could tell there was something out there. I could see the, uh, the difference between the black trees and the lighter colored, colored dirt out there a couple of hundred yards, and I could see something moving. So I just shed every, dropped my pack and, and got set up uh, prone and realized after the shot that I had dropped in a big mud puddle. I, had no, I didn't even realize. Oh, no. But by the time I got on the scope, I could see two uh, deer moving uh, across, the, across the, uh, uh, the field, say, you know, uh, kind of quartering away from me, almost quartering away from me. And I could tell that the one in back had something on its head. So... I got dialed in, and by the time I got back, uh, everything ready and all all tied in, I could see it had uh, something pretty substantial on top of its head. Back then, I was shooting a 300 Weatherby, and uh, the ammo was just horribly expensive, so that got me into reloading. <laughs> and so I ended up uh, shooting a really really nice buck for down here. He was a pretty nice buck for me generally. He's about 135, 140-inch uh, whitetail. Real nice. Uh, and uh, took him down with a, with a hand-loaded nozzler. But what got me about it was, is we uh, down here it's so warm that uh, we try to hang them in a cooler as soon as we can. And on this place, we had the back of an old milk truck that we'd hooked up to a battery system, and, and it would uh, it, it was that was our deer cooler. And I, I uh, clean I field dressed the deer and hung him in the cooler, uh, and then took him out three days later and drove him to town and put him on a cattle scale. He was 195 pounds. Wow, so he's a pretty big deer. And what really got me though was if, at that particular place this is a while back we were on the the state of alabama uh, has a has a, a doe harvest program they come in and do a survey and see what you have and they give you doe tags uh, but one of the requirements is that is that you have to submit the jaw bones of the deer that you take 
so that they can see what the age structure is. And when they got that one, the comment was, you need to quit killing your three-and-a-half-year-old deer. I just went, holy crap. <laughs> it was the biggest deer I'd ever seen down here. Uh, but he, he was young. He was young. But, uh, we, we've got him. Wow. So, you know, we actually haven't had a whole lot of people from, you know, this part of the country that you're from on the show, but I get a lot of our listeners who've got, who hunt down in, in the southern part of the country, and they're looking for, you know, some advice from, from guys in their area. So since we've got you on the line, I'm curious, you know, what do you see as some of the biggest differences between hunting down in Alabama or different places like that compared to what some of us might be experiencing up in the Midwest? You know, are your tactics you know, the same, or are you doing some things that are a little bit different because of the changes or the different type of situations you have down there? Now, I'm probably not going to be able to give you much in the way of tactics because there are people out there who know a lot more about deer hunting than I, than I do. But I will tell you one major difference I see from the planning, uh, respect of planning, is that mm-hmm. uh, you, know, you have perennials and annuals that you can plant in your food plot. Perennials are plants that you plant, and they should last several years from a single planting with a little maintenance and Mother Nature's cooperation. And annuals are things that you plant that will last for part of a calendar year. Um, I've noticed that, uh, that down here in the south, most people plant their perennials in the fall, whereas in the uh, Midwest and uh, especially up north, they tend to plant them in the spring. That's probably the biggest difference from a planting, uh, planting perspective, I'd say. So why is that? Why, why is that different timing? better for each region? Uh, there they could be a number of reasons. I really don't know uh, Don't know why the difference is so big because you can plant perennials down here in the south. Uh, it's, it, it's a little bit more difficult to get your weed control done because you can't you know, spray before you do it. Uh, and my guess would be that at least in the far north is that, uh, that it just gets so cold so quickly that people like to have a little extra growing, growing time before they've got to hit that bad weather. I gotcha. That makes sense. So I guess taking a step back then, you know, if we've got a listener maybe who has wanted to plant a food plot before, he just hasn't done it yet. A fall food plot seems like probably an annual, seems like something that maybe is, you know, manageable for him or her. Um, but, but they don't really know where to start for that guy or girl. You know, what are some of the main things they, they need to be thinking through first? What are, what are those initial steps that they need to begin going okay. through once they've made that decision to do it. The first tip I can give them is don't forget, this is supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to be a pain, and it's not a pain, and it's not rocket science. I mean, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Uh, if you're not really sure uh, what, you're, what you're doing, you want to just kind of dabble in it, or you don't have a lot of equipment, you can find annual forages that you can put out uh, in the fall that will take you all the way through season, uh, they'll do a very good job for you. And i tell you what I found more than anything else is that once somebody has success in, in, with food plots, not just, uh, and I'm talking about in growing the plot, and uh, when they see what the difference uh, it makes in their hunting, they tend to get uh, kind of pat themselves on the back. And, you know, when they get old like me, you get to the point where, yeah, if a big, really nice big buck walks out, I'm probably going to shoot him. But I enjoy sitting in the stand and looking out at my field that I grew. And I go, man, I, I made that. It's really cool. But you, they can do it so easily. Uh, one, of the, one of the things uh, that, that really will help, though, once you start getting into it, is the most important thing you can do is a laboratory soil test. And we hammer and hammer and hammer about that. Uh, it is so critical for a couple of reasons. One is for soil pH. That's the most important. 
this was a big light bulb that came on in my head when I first understood this. It, it, I went, oh, my gosh. Used to be we'd plant a food plot, didn't look too good, throw some more fertilizer on it. When I finally figured out what soil pH means, I guess is the word, it, it really turned on the light bulb for me. It's basically a measurement of how well a plant can get nutrients out of the soil, okay? Mm-hmm. And different plants have different ranges that are, that are optimum for them. Most high-quality deer forages like to have soil pH around 6.5 to 7.5, right? And then we'll just call that neutral for our purposes. Um, most fallow soils are lower than that. They're acidic. And what happens is this. The lower the soil pH goes below the optimum range for the, the, pl- the plants you're putting in, the more the nutrients in the soil are bound up in a way that plants can't access them. And I'll give, I'll, I'll give you an example of how that works. Let's say you had a, a, soil with a, a food plot with soil with a soil pH of 5.0. And uh, you went out there and you bought 100 bucks worth of fertilizer, put it out, and planted a high-quality deer forage. You might as well have just taken $50 and thrown it down the drain because the plants can't get about half the nutrients uh, in the fertilizer. It's like uh, you and I are plants. We're sitting high, sitting at a table. This is an analogy I came up with. I saw somebody grabbed it for an article one day, but it's, so it's apparently pretty good. It's like you and I are sitting at a, at a table. It's full of food, and the food is fertilizer. When the when the, the temperature, let's say, is is in optimum range for us, and that's the analogous to the soil pH. We are free to eat just as much as we want. But then when we start dropping down below that, we get wire in our jaws. And the farther below that we go, the tighter that wire gets. And it, it happens pretty quickly. Most fallow soils, five is, 5.0 is pretty low. But mid-fives, that's, that's not unusual at all. It's quite common. Uh, and you're just, you're just losing a whole bunch of money. And you, I mean, soil tests, lab soil tests, are, are something like 10, 15 bucks a piece. And you usually end up saving hundreds of bucks uh, per acre in, uh, in, in lime and fertilizer expenses uh, by getting exactly what you need and not wasting a dime getting lime and fertilizer that you really don't need. Uh, and that's what the soil test tells you. It's a good idea to decide what you're going to plant before you put it out, fill out the soil test, and tell the lab what you'll be planning, and that way they can very precisely tailor their recommendations to you for you so you get everything you need, don't spend a dime you don't need, you rest assured that, uh, that with Mother Nature's cooperation, you plan it right, it's going to do everything it can do, and all the money you can keep in your wallet is going to stay there. So is that your main tool then to help you decide what yes. you should be planning? But when you're no, trying no, to decide no, what no, plan? not to decide what you're going to be planning. Uh, and, and that's a very good point. You want to try to figure out what you're planting before you do the soil test. Okay. Now, you can do the soil test first, but if you don't write on the submission form what you're going to be planting, then the lab's going to take a guess. They'll usually just give you a recommendation for grains. But if you can write on there what you're planting, then they can tailor it uh, to that specific forage, and all, all forages don't, uh, don't take the same fertilizer. Some may need different fertilizers, and it all depends on, uh, on what you're planting and the profile of the soil in your plot. Some soils will hold lime and fertilizer better than others, which is why the probes that you see, those little do-it-yourself probes and slurries, they can be accurate. Uh, sometimes they're not because they're subject to human error, um, 
but they, I've never seen one of those yet that gives you a specific recommendation. If it comes back, soil pH is exactly this, put on exactly this amount of lime. It'll give you a range, but it can't be exact because part of that depends on the profile of the soil in your plot. And so by doing a lab soil test, it's going to be about the same amount of money. Uh, it's very, very simple. Uh, a qualified lab will tell you uh, what you need, and it just is it's the closest thing to alchemy, to making money out of nothing I've ever seen. Wow. So, so then I guess the step that needs to precede that, then you just mentioned, is then deciding what it is you want to plant. Right. So that process, I mean, if there's any one question that I get more from people about food plots, it's something related to that. It's, you know, what should I plant in this situation? Or what's the best thing I can plant in Michigan or whatever state? And I know, you know, from my own experience, that answer varies dramatically based on goals and a whole lot of different things. But That's absolutely right, yes. But could you walk our listeners through the process or the questions they should be thinking through on how sure. they should decide on what to plant? Right. Now, if you want to go out and hit a food plot for the first time, uh, you know, we have we have products, and other folks do do too, that do very well. Uh, that you can literally come out and just kind of clean off the dirt enough to where the seed won't land in the grass head. It'll make it down to the dirt, and rough it up a little bit with a rake, put some fertilizer and seed on it, and you're rocking. Uh, you can do well now if you are getting into it a little more. Uh, if you have a bigger property, say you might want to <clears throat> run. Excuse me, run perennials and annuals. Usually people will start out rule of thumb anywhere from 60-75% perennials, run the rest in annuals. Uh, you want to decide what you're going to put in each plot. That's the first step, test the soil. Next thing is you want to get your lime in, in the ground. If your soil pH is low and you've told the lab what you're going to be planting, you'll have a very specific recommendation as to how much lime to put out. Uh, I've heard people say, oh, it takes a year for soil pH to come up. Well, it, it can, and that's a, that's a pretty rare case. Usually, if you get the lime out there and you disc it in, uh, it you know real well, thoroughly, get it thoroughly incorporated in the soil. Uh, a couple of months in advance is, is plenty of time. Uh, you can get that going up. Now, as, to, as for what you're going to plant, that's going to depend. Uh, with our products, what we do is we try to build products for specific circumstances. Like if you want a perennial, we've got Imperial Whitetail Clover. It's the number one food plot plant in the world. Uh, it's made for bottomland or soil that can hold moisture pretty well, uh, and is pretty flat site. On the other end of the, of the spectrum for perennials, we have extreme, and it can be grown in a good soil or a lighter soil that's well-drained. So you need to look at the plot and then understand uh, what type plants will grow best in that sort of drainage and moisture-holding capacity, and if you want them for cool season, warm season, year-round, that kind of thing, and then pick them like that. Okay. Now... Dan, over there, you haven't planted food plots. I've been planting food plots now four or five years, and so this stuff, I've read a lot about it. These things all kind of make sense to me. But for someone who maybe doesn't have that same experience, I'm curious, after hearing all the stuff that John has said, is there anything that you're like, ah, I still don't get what he's saying about this, or are there questions you have? Because I want to make sure if there are listeners who aren't as food plot experienced that they're that they're registering all, all these things. Is there anything that you need some more clarification on when it comes to that stuff? Well, I, you know, I have a lot of questions, but the first thing that pops into my head is I feel that, you know, I, 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 you know, I, someone who says they have a food plot and I, I read into it or I look into it and they typically have a four wheeler with a disc or they have, you know, a, a little bit more money to put into it other than what I would have to put into it, which would be a rake in my own time. So, right. 
you know, I, I feel that people can get a little overwhelmed with the starting and, you know, you've mentioned soil samples and making sure that there's lime, which, you know, all that stuff costs money and then fertilizer and, and then seed. What's a, what's a basic misconception that I guess beginner food, uh, food plotists like myself, you know, if the next, if I decide to uh, do a food plot some year, what's a, a basic misconception that would rid the fear, so to speak? Uh, the, the biggest misconception is that it's difficult. Yeah. It really isn't. I'll, let me just give you a kind of a one, two, three. Uh, if you're going to start out doing food plots, you've got a piece of property, uh, you want to put in a food plot system, you're going to do it the same way, pretty much the same way, whether you've got 20 acres or 800 acres. First thing is you decide uh, how many plots you want, how much acreage you want to put in food plots. A lot of people, larger properties, they may put five or ten percent of the property in food plots. Have big central, centrally located plots, have little hunting plots. But decide uh, how much acreage you're going to devote to it. On a smaller property, it may be simple. You may be saying, "I'm going to plant here because it's the only place I've got." Uh, but look for other places that you might not be thinking of, such as is there a power line or, or gas gas right away going through there? You can usually plant those. This is something we were talking about the other day. Is that uh, is that uh, another thing to do is to look if you've got you know pretty good heavy woods on your property. Just find places where the sunlight makes it to the ground for three or four hours. If you can find spots like that, you've got a food plot site. And you know, granted, you want to have enough room. We we generally say, and this is just a ballpark. It can it can be different depending on a lot of different situations, but. Generally, you want to start with a minimum plot size of about about 4,500, 5,000 square feet, basically the goal line to the 10-yard line on a football field. Uh, you start getting much below that, you run a risk of, of, of kind of early overgrazing, uh, but that's a, that's a good starting point to start with. And if, if you're walking through the woods and you find a place where the dapple sunlight comes through, but you don't have quite that much room, hey, it doesn't have to be in one contiguous piece of, piece of ground. It can be sort of off, a little bit off to the left here, a little bit off to the right. Anything you can do like that that adds uh, adds a feeling of safety for the deer, heck, it's even better. So find your stand site on the downwind corner of these little spots and then plant four or five of them in the woods. That's a great way to do that. Once you know uh, where your plots are going to be, then decide what you're going to plant in each plot. Do a soil test, laboratory soil test for each plot. Don't do one for the whole property. Do one for each plot. Uh, you'd only need to do more than that if you have a larger plot where there are obviously soil differences, like you've got, a, say, a sandy bank coming down to a black bottom. Uh, it's all in one plot. You might want to do, do two in that. But for most cases, one lab soil test is enough. Be sure and put on the report what you're going to be planting. Uh, our soil test kit I like a lot. It's a full laboratory soil test kit, but we restructured the report so it doesn't have all those extra numbers and uh, percentages that farmers need that we really don't. It's very simple. Uh, it it uh, lays out as a bar graph, shows you what's in the soil, and then it even makes recommendations on the second page about how to fulfill the recommendations with commonly available bagged fertilizers. That's the next step. You want to get out there and get the lime worked in, preferably a few months before you plant. Um, then really just uh, if you're planting a product uh, like ours or any other, you know, food plot 
company is probably, I guess they do, they're going to have instructions on the back of the bag like we do, and they'll tell you uh, in there about how to plant it and when to plant it. Um, one point about that, too, is uh, when you look at at least our instructions, they're pretty short. And, again, I, I have not seen anybody else's instructions, so I don't know if theirs are short or not. But, uh, you know, when you're deciding what you want to do, be sure you follow those instructions step-by-step step in order. It's very simple to do. They're not hard to do, but we structured them with this in mind. The last thing we want somebody to do is to walk up and grab a, a Whitetail Institute forage product, flip it over on the back, and see a list of instructions that's so long and tedious that the customer's going to go forget this and go get wheat rind oats. So we keep it very short, very sweet, uh, but you get to follow them in order, and that also means that every step that's on there is important. It may just be five, six, seven things on there, but if you skip one of them, it, it can shoot you in the foot. Uh, so that's the other thing is just follow the instructions on it. And then if you have a perennial, be sure you do your perennial maintenance in the spring. Uh, and then even when we do a do a food plot uh, workup for somebody, I always tell them at the end, this is the best that we could draft for you. Now, you need to watch what your deer do this year because you'll probably want to tweak it based on what they do. It's always an ongoing experiment, and that's part of the fun of it. Yeah, I think uh, I can definitely relate to that too. You know, being the fact that you're constantly learning from it, but it's just a matter of, of getting started, like getting your foot sure. in the water, and then sure. your your eyes kind of open to the possibilities and the fact that, you know, it's not so hard. Um, right. You know, my first food plot, I was 21 years old, I think. I didn't have much money at all. I didn't have any land I owned. I didn't have any kind of equipment at all. So I had yeah. permission to hunt on a little property. I asked the landowner, hey, there's this little corner over here where it's not, nothing's planted. Any chance that I could plant something there? And he said, oh, sure. You know, how the heck are you going to do that? I'm like, well, I'm not quite <laughs> sure yet, but I'll figure yeah. it out. And I yeah. used, I, I got a family member, had a little like 12 inch wide push rototiller that I got permission to use, brought that over. I did a soil test. I, I got Boy, you must have been young. That that beat me to death trying to do that today. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I the 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 food plot was so small that like the amount of fertilizer and lime and stuff that I needed when I went to a, a grain mill or something to, to get it, they laughed at me when I asked for the amount. I'm like, <laughs> I need a quarter pound of this and yeah. I just I got laughed at. Um but I got all the little stuff I needed and I got a bag of it, it was no plow and I dissed it up with a little road, tilted it up. I dragged a stick across it just to kind of tamp stuff down. I broadcast the seed, stamped on everything again, and, uh, you know, in a week or two or whatever it was, unbelievably there was all this green, lush growth coming up. And that was yeah. just the coolest thing. Just seeing, like you said earlier, John, just seeing this field that I planted, it and was. It gives you a sense of accomplishment. It absolutely did. And even though it was super small, like smaller than a, like it was like an eighth acre or something. It was tiny. Yeah. Um, it actually, you know consistently drew deer to pass through that area i had multiple shooter right. bucks pass through there and it really helped um but what so you you discovered something that a lot of folks don't realize you know we 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 often talk about the fact that that our forages are are, are built to be highly nutritious to uh, help you grow bigger and better deer and so but and, and yet we can still say uh, if you plant our food plots or you plant somebody else's high quality food plot product you're gonna, your, your deer hunting is probably going to improve the first year. Well, how can we say that? Because it, you know, the nutrition is not going to really get into them that quickly. No, but you're going to draw deer. You're going to draw deer from elsewhere and help make your uh, 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 your property a place that they want to go and hopefully stay if you 
do it the right way. So, yeah, it can improve it that very first year. So i got a question related to then what you just said there. What's the minimum size of a food plot that you would need to actually impact nutrition of your herd? Because, you know, like you just mentioned, like I mentioned, you can yeah, easily I'm not sure I can hunting. really tell you that because a lot of it is going to depend on deer density. Uh, you know, use a lot of analogies. I've been asked that before, and I say, well, it's like saying I got eight guys and a glass of water. How long is it going to take them to go through the water? Well, how thirsty are they? How big is the glass of water? You know, there's no way to really, to really, uh, that I can answer that. There, you, you can probably find a wildlife biologist who can tell you, uh, give you some rough, uh, some some rough ideas. Uh, but also, you have to take into account what do they have to eat around you. You know, is, is what you planted on your place going to be a primary? source of uh, supplemental food for them. There are a lot of factors that go into it. Very, that's, a, that's a very good point. I like the analogy, too. Um, so then, what if I live in farm country? This is another question I get a lot. I live in ag land. There's lots of crop fields all around me. What's the point of planting food plots in that situation? What do you say well, to that person? No, well, I'll tell you what. If you're in, in farm country, uh, my hat's off to you. I wish we had more of it down here. The, the deer I told you about that I shot that was unusually large for what what I had seen down here was in an area where you can drive and it's just soybeans, soybeans, soybeans forever. Uh, and, they're, and they're just out there chowing on that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, you know, think about it this way. Deer are always physiologically, they're recovering from something or they're doing something or they're getting ready and they're getting ready to do something, usually all three. So, you know, and this is something else that we were talking about in our article meeting the other day was, uh, was how efficient, uh, the far- farming has become uh, in terms of, of, of getting uh, the, the grain or fruit out of the field and having as little waste as possible. Uh, you know, they stalk chop things now instead of just, just picking the ends off, uh, the corn and things like that. So if the, farmer come, if, if the farmers come in there and harvest everything uh, at the same time, that sort of leaves a little bit of a break in what the deer are used to, and they'll need to go find something else to eat. That's, that's one issue. Um, also, if there's a lot of one thing uh, in the area, food plot can give you a chance to give them something a little bit different. Maybe something that they might might prefer a little, you know, a little better. Not prefer better, but something that they might enjoy uh, having as a break, a little more attractive that way. That's a great point. That's a that's a big unique difference between deer and you know other animals like a cow or something because we. Deer like to browse. They like to selectively Absolutely. pick different things based on what's most palatable and like variety. Um, and that's one of the big things I've found is that even though I'm surrounded by corn and beans, I add yeah. these little dessert plots all over the place that even though it's tiny and even though they've got tons of grain sure. all around them, they hit these little spots because they want that change of pace. They want the sure. ice cream. And I'll tell you another thing you can do, um, and this is uh, this is kind of a neat, dirty trick, uh, up there where you are, I know a lot of folks plant corn, uh, but you can go in, you know, if you go into a field that, uh, that maybe hasn't been, it's been harvested, but maybe they haven't cut everything down all the way, you can come in during your, uh, during your planting dates and put wintergreens, broadcast that or no plow just down on the ground with fertilizer and provided he hadn't used some horrible uh, herbicide, uh, you still get a real good attractive food source in there with the remaining cover uh, of the corn stalks. Really? So oh, yeah. how late could you get away with doing that? Oh, boy, good question. Um, in a, the uh, 
plenty of dates are on our website, but I'll tell you, in the far north, generally we say you want to try to get wintergreens in the ground about 50 days before you think you're going to get your first frost. Okay. So any time in there would be good. And I've, I've seen people take that farther, and this is a killer setup. If you're going to go plant corn just for the wildlife, uh, and this is a great idea with a lot of different things. Our power plant work with this. Let's say you're going to plant corn. Uh, go out there and plant in rows, but uh, think about the most commonly prevailing wind direction. During hunting season down here, it's usually out of the northwest, and we have weird winds, but you plant on northwest wind, and then you find a, a place to put your stand, an area down where you're going to hang it on the, on the downwind corner or edge. Then you plant your corn rows radiating out from the stand so you can see down them. Maybe leave a little, little, extra, a little extra space between them. Uh, and if it's a Roundup-ready corn that he's planted, you know, they come in there and round up everything, uh, and then you've still got the stalks standing up, and uh, you put the no-plow or wintergreens or something like that, plant that in between the, r- the rows, just broadcast it, and the deer have, have this great feeling of safety because they have this, uh, you know, this, this nice standing uh, corn stalks everywhere. And they don't know you're at the other end with a, with a rifle looking down the rows. So right. that, that's a real killer setup. That does sound pretty nice, Dan. Would you like a setup like that? I would love a setup like that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a dirty trick. I like dirty tricks. They're yeah, those are the best. <laughs> <laughs> I got a question in regards to, um, oh, geez, I think I just forgot it. No, oh, no, here it is. Um, you know, <laughs> we talked about um, the deer's palate or yeah. uh, herd nutrition. Is there a specific um, type of plant or food plot that a lot of people like to plant, but really don't give the deer a ton of nutrition? Well, that's, that's a good question. There, some things are, are, have a higher nutritive, nutritional content than others. Uh, I, I guess to answer that, I'd have to ask a question is, what do you mean by nutrition? Because the, there's a misconception out there that protein year-round is the king. There's no doubt protein's important. I mean, during the spring and summer, you know, they're trying to grow antlers. Uh, velvet antlers, 80% collagen, which is a protein, and uh, even the hardened antlers, it's, it's like 50, 45, 55% protein. But then when you get start getting around till fall, protein is still important, but that's when, uh, when another uh, nutrient or actually a product of nutrients, uh, Matt Harper's and had worked here for a long time. He's a good friend, and he describes it very well. Uh, he'd said that uh, that, ener- that energy becomes the king, and it's uh, hopefully I'm getting his words right. Uh, but energy is a product of other nutrients like lipids and fats and things like that, and that becomes more important during the colder months to keep the deer going, to keep them healthy. So you may have one plant that's very, very high in carbohydrates uh, that's great for planting for fall and winter, may not be as high in protein. So it kind of depends on, on uh, what season you're looking at and, and what the overriding needs are at the time. So then for, for someone who's thinking about planting a food plot now and they're trying uh-huh. to focus on just that fall time frame, providing, okay. you know, providing some type of helpful benefit to deer at that time, sure. what would some of the different forages be that would fit that type of goal? Oh, there, there are a number of them. Uh, we, have, we have blends of different forages that, that are, are uh, are good for that time of year, but specific plant types. Uh, oats are very good, fertilized oats. I don't know how it is where you are, but we've planted wheat, rye, and oats here for, for generations. And uh, it's it's my opinion, just from my observation, that of the three, 
deer will walk through the other two to get the fertilized oats. They'll just do it. Uh, some oats are even better than others uh, for as a, uh, a food plot product. We've got whitetail oats. They're very high sugar oats. Uh, oats tend to kind of get used up before before uh, the real uh, cold weather comes in. And then you have brassicas. Brassicas are, are excellent. Uh, we've got two types. We've got the, the standard brassicas. We also have a lettuce-type brassica, which is our wintergreens product. It's a lot more attractive earlier. In fact, they slamming it down here in Alabama in September. Uh, but it doesn't produce the tubers that our, that our turnip product does. So uh, the turnips and the uh, the, bra- the other brassicas, the lettuce brassicas, are another uh, excellent choice. You've also got, uh, gosh, there's so many different things. You've got uh, you've got winter peas, and then you have uh, you have shielding crops such as the uh, beets and things like that. So uh, basically, if you go uh, buy you know put together your own mix, you need to look and see. Just look for cool season forages for deer, uh, and if you buy a product, it should say on there whether it's for fall or for spring hours do, or whether it's a perennial. Yeah, I think uh, I like I like what you're saying there. I have really found. For me personally, I've tried a lot of different things, and you know, there's there's lots, like you said, there's lots of options, and you can make your own blends. You can buy blends from companies like you guys. Um, sure. But what what's worked really well for me is the first two things you mentioned, and now this is what I do for all my fall food plots, is I split them between your whitetail oats, which come up really fast and great, and the deer hammer them from like September through October, and mm-hmm. then, and then they kind of fade off a little bit after that, but. Then I had the other half in their winter greens, those brassicas, and there's some turnips yeah. mixed in there, and they kill those from November through January. So I've got my entire season, you know, covered in these plots. And what I'm able to do then, because I kind of have a food plot location that pulls them consistently from September through January, I'm able to, you know, see these consistent feed to bed patterns. And then I'm able to continue to hunt those throughout the entire season. And it's also nutritional for the deer, and it's great for my hunting. Um, sure. That's and, what's worked really well for me. Another fun part of that. Is since you're planting them separately instead of together, you can you can see which ones the deer hit at what times. Uh, another thing I tell people is if you find two or three uh, things that look uh, look interesting to you, they're the same plant types, like say a clover. Plant them side by side and watch what the deer do. Uh, I tell people to do that with imperial clover all the time, and I tell them to put ours out in the middle, put any other clover between our clover and the woods, and watch what the deer do. And do they always go to Imperial Clover? Well, of course not. But they they do uh, uh, enough that, uh, that I'm pretty comfortable uh, challenging people to do that because uh, it's it's a real eye opener. Because once once somebody sees a deer go to something consistently and hit it and hit it and hit it and eat it down almost to the dirt and keep hitting it and it keeps growing and they won't leave it alone, kind of has a way of of of, of getting them uh, getting them settled that uh, that there's a difference and there is a difference. Yeah, that's pretty compelling if you see that kind of thing. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah, it is. Now, what about design of your food plot? Like the actual, you know, what the shape of the food plot is. There's lots of different takes on this, lots of different ideas. Um, but again, if I'm talking fall and, you know, if I'm thinking most fall food plots are more hunting-focused food plots, do you have any designs sure. or shapes of food plots that you really like or that you'd recommend some of our listeners try out? Sure. There, uh, there are uh, several, at least several good shapes, but it's better to back up and think about the overall point you're going at, and that is to create a place that is not only attractive to deer, but also that they will feel as comfortable as possible using during daylight hours. 
And that begins not with the plot, but uh, the structure of the plot, but the location of the plot, and then your access to it. Can you get to it uh, in any wind direction, uh, in, in some wind direction? You may have three or four different approaches. I do. Uh, so that you can get in and get out without getting busted. Because if you get busted, it's over. Uh, so that's the main thing. Um, as far as shapes go, yeah, there's a there's a one idea is an hourglass plot. That's one. I, there's two I like a lot. One's an hourglass, and these are generally in the woods, uh, and the deer tend to kind of uh, they'll uh, they'll cross at the narrow part usually, or they'll cross across one of the lobes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll put my stand kind of down toward the neck of it uh, where I can cover it. Um, but a lot of times a deer will enter one lobe and kind of walk out, look down the other side to see who's over there. That's a great setup. Another one is just an L-shaped plot, and it works great uh, great in the woods, or you can do it at the edge of a field when you have high grass and woods because the deer feel comfortable kind of easing out uh, into it. Long and skinny is always better than wide and, wide and fat. And here's another idea, and this will go back to the small plots we talked about earlier. Uh, some folks uh, are under the misconception that the ground has to be clear so that you can plant a food plot. Well, it's not true. Uh, I don't know who came up with this, this term, but somebody referred to something called linear edge. And basically all that is is anywhere that the food plot, the planted part of the plot, butts up against real cover or something a deer would perceive as cover. It could be a thicket, uh, you know, 10 rows of standing corn, but the more... The, the more of that line that you have built into the plot, then the safer the deer should feel. Uh, for instance, instead of having the plot square, let the edges wander out. You don't have to straighten it out. If you've got a blow down in the plot, leave it there. Plant around the thing. That's linear edge because it breaks up the deer's outline, and uh, you know, you're not going to lose much, much planting space that way. If you've got a larger area, and I've seen folks do this, they'll come in there and they'll have you know, a, a good-sized field. Uh, you know, 50, 100-acre field, and they'll come out there and just plant a big old postage postage stamp uh, in one corner of it or even out in the middle, which is worse. Well, no deer is going to walk out there unless it's in the rut, maybe. Uh, but you can, instead of doing that, think about the downwind uh, uh, thing again. You know, figure out where you're going to be putting your stand if you're hunting on the plot and plant in strips that radiate out from the stand like spokes of a wheel. Leaf. I don't know, eight, ten feet of something natural growing there that's tall enough to where the deer feels like he's, uh, you know, he's he's going to be safe, and you can just look down the strips, and that's that's a great way to do it. It really enhances the feeling of safety the deer have using it. Yeah, that's a great point. It's and tell me if you agree with this, but I think that something that I've done, it's very similar to what you just said. There is if I have a large area, you know, for example, I had I opened up about a three, four acre what it used to be just a kind of fallow grass field. I wanted to turn that into a food plot system this past year. And instead of, you know, making that just one big giant food plot, what, I mean, giant's a relative term. Three to four acres yeah. is giant for me. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, uh, I know, that's a big plot. Yeah, it's a big area. <laughs> that's um, a big one. So instead of having one huge food plot, what I did is I planted uh, a screening cover all around the yeah. outside, and then I actually planted that through the inside too, and I broke this into three small pieces instead of one big plot. So yeah, 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 yeah. these deer would like exactly like you said, they would feel like they're in a smaller area, they're closer to cover, there's lots of edge, and I think also it might even you know from from smarter guys than me have told me that you know that reduces some stress on the deer too when they can't see the other you know seven deer yeah. in the other corner. Yes, um, I have had uh, again I, again I am not a hunting expert. <laughs> 
but I've had uh, those who are tell me that yeah, that that's another another aspect of that is it helps individual bucks use different parts of the field uh, with less stress because they're not eyeball to eyeball, and that and the if as long as there's something between them, it it kind of makes it a little more pleasant for them. Yeah, it, it definitely helped my situation. I think that you know I, I definitely wouldn't be seeing deer use that area during daylight if I just had one big wide open field. But yeah, since yeah. I broke it down and since I enclosed the edge, um, I saw lots of daytime movement. I had mature sure. deer using the area, and it it made it for a fun place to sit and watch deer and, and to get a couple hunts in too. So, mm-hmm. absolutely. So let's say I've planted a food plot. I've got my first one figured out. I'm, you know, kind of getting the swing of things. Here's something that I've encountered, um, as I've gotten now into years four or five, six of my food plotting career is that I'm, I'm realizing now that, um, you know, these are some mistakes I made in the past that I planted one thing and I really liked what I planned there. So I kept planning it year after year after year. Now right. I've started to see maybe that the food plot isn't coming in quite as well year three or four or something like that. And I've, I've read and I've, I've learned some of the things that, you might want to do like rotating your crops is is rotating sure. your food plots is that important and why is that important if so it, it is uh brassicas uh are the first things that come to mind you don't want to plant them more than a year maybe two years in a row in the same dirt without having a break when we talk about a rotational crop all we're talking about is something that's an entirely different kind of plant like if you've got legumes in there Maybe plant some grains in there. Something totally different just for one growing season. Brassicas, you want to do that after every one to maybe two years. You want to go to something totally different. Uh, other things like clovers, uh, things like that, they don't. Uh, most other plants don't have that sort of problem. But no matter what it is, if you've had the same thing growing in the same piece of dirt for years and years and years, eventually you're going to have to rotate into something else. Usually the first sign of that is that you're doing everything you're supposed to do. Soil pH is at neutral. You're fertilizing like you're supposed to. Uh, Mother Nature has cooperated. You've had rain, and it just isn't looking as good as it was. That usually indicates that it's time for rotation. And there, you know, that's for, there are a couple of tests you can do to go out and see. One is you can go out and yank up some of the plants and look at the roots. Uh, if they're, they should be firm and healthy, and if they're thin or spindly or... If you fish around down in the soil and you find a lot of grubs or other in, insects, that's those are other indicators that it's it's time to rotate. But generally, it's much easier than that. You just look and you're doing everything you're supposed to, and it's not doing doing like it's supposed to. It's time to rotate. Um, that's usually something to take uh, to take into account, especially if you're planting a perennial that's going to last for multiple years. Let's say you've had imperial clover in for for five years and it's it's still going going well. Uh, you know, do you want to uh, think about start taking it out now, or do you want to let it go a little longer? Uh, you know, just make sure you check it to make sure that it's still doing well. Uh, and once it starts to decline a little bit, then it's probably time to work it back up or something else. Okay, that's good to know. I, I definitely, as you mentioned, I've learned that I can't let my brassicas go for more than a couple of years, so I've started flipping. Yeah. I flip in my food plots, so that's why I've started doing this split where I do oats on one side, brassicas on the other. I just flip flop them every yep. year. And that's a great idea because you're right there in the same area. You want to have the same things in the plot. Just pick one up and move it to the other side and vice versa. There you go. Yeah, it's worked it's worked. Great well way for to me. do it. Yeah. So so we are coming up on time here, but Dan, from your perspective, again, from the non food plotter but aspiring food plotter, anything else that you feel like you really still need to know before you could get started? I have a question in regards to 
time of hunt, I guess the morning or evening hunts, is there, uh, I don't know if you guys have any research to back this up. Is there a certain kind of food plot that deer will hit in the mornings as opposed to evenings or vice versa? I don't know. Uh, we've never done any research on that that I'm aware of. Uh, I know that, you know, they're, of course, I'm, you know, this is a dumb thing to say because you know this deer, uh, animals are usually most active in the, in the, uh, in the morning and the evening. Uh, but I think it. I think it more more important than that is pressure. Uh, I know for a fact down here that deer. I mean, just from hunting here in the south, deer pattern people, and there a lot of these big hunting camps down here. They've always, you know, about go out in the morning and hunt till about you know eight or ten, about ten or eleven something like that. Come back, have a big lunch, and get a snooze, and go back at about three. And I love to hunt places like that because I go down in the woods about eleven and I get out about three and I see deer all over the place. Hmm. So that probably is. Uh, I'd, I'd say that's that's going to be more important uh, than than, uh, than the than the forage. Uh, what forage is in there, as long as it's attractive, as to being a difference between morning and afternoon. There may be some biological reason, but I've never even considered it. You know, just like typically, and I don't know if this is just. I, I guess I, I I can't really tell what it is, but yeah, breakfast foods, t- traditional breakfast foods, we don't typically eat eggs and bake, you know, eggs and bacon for supper, you know, yeah. as as opposed to eating them in eating it in the morning. I don't know if that's just humans or if if deer have that same kind of oh we love these kind of leaves off these kind of trees in the mornings and and just how their day is. That, that I do not know. Uh, the only thing I can tell you is, is that they do prefer a very, as I think you said earlier, is a narrow palatability range. They eat a lot of different things, but only the most tender shoots and leaves and buds because of their uh, digestive systems, the nature of it. Uh, but as far as whether uh, one is a morning or one is afternoon food, uh, I really don't know. And uh, it'd be interesting to find out, but I suspect that that that'd be pretty hard to measure because it's going to depend more on deer's patterns naturally and uh, and what sort of pressure they're exposed to that dictates their movement uh, and their feeding patterns a heck of a lot more than that. Gotcha. There's a lot of variables that would go into that. That's for sure. That's what makes it fun. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's that's interesting stuff. I, I, that's a heck of an idea, Dan. If you can figure out some way to test that, I think yeah, you definitely. could you could uh, <laughs> you could get some notoriety in this field, Dan, if you can pull that off. <laughs> I mean, even more notoriety than you already have. Exactly, which is hard to do, right? <laughs> right. Absolutely. Right. Hey, I'm known for having nine fingers, and that's about that's, it. That's your, that's your main claim to fame. <laughs> you don't need any more than that. That's okay. It works for him, I guess. Absolutely. <laughs> so, Absolutely. So my final question for you, John, then, is this. And maybe we've covered it, maybe we haven't yet. But if you could think of what the single greatest mistake that the average food plotter is making, what is that? Failure to make sure soil pH is in neutral range. And that goes back to failure to do a, let's say failure to do a laboratory soil test before you get ready to plant. And so you can't follow the instructions because you don't have one. That's the biggest mistake. And you can make a laboratory soil test and getting the soil pH right can make the difference between the best plot you ever saw and total failure. It's that important, and it keeps money in your pocket. It's a no-brainer. I think even Dan would do that. 
It's, right. it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that's a great point. And I think, you know, one thing that some people assume um, is that it takes a really long time to get a lab test and send it in and get it back. Yeah. And in some cases, you know, it depends on where you're sending it, but I know I've done it through you guys and it was pretty quick. And if you can't send it out, there are field offices um, in a lot of areas where they'll actually, you can just drive it somewhere, drop it off and get it back quickly too. So I think, you know, just explore your options. Absolutely. It, the only thing is when you do that, make sure that they are actually sending that dirt off to a qualified soil testing lab and you don't have Bubba in the, in the, in the back <laughs> closet with a slurry. Uh, it, it needs to go to a lab. That's a great point. So I think uh, I think I'm ready to get my food plot work done. I, I just need to find someone who's got a bigger disc than I have who can help me handle my overgrown food plots. Unfortunately, here in the next week. Well, I, but uh, I understand. Well, listen. Let me tell you. You know, anytime you we can help you, you guys or anybody else, just give us a call. I mean, we've got you know for your listeners out there, whether you're a customer ours or not, uh, we've got an 800 number, 800-688-3030. Just press extension two. We've got uh, a bank of really smart guys, in-house consultants, that are here to answer questions for people about about planting and uh, deer hunting and forage selection and soil testing. If you get a soil test you can't read, and it's not ours, call them. They'll help you go through it. But uh, uh, you've got that resource out there. Yeah, I think that's super helpful. That was something that was very helpful for me in that first year or two of food plots is, is I – I was an idiot. I didn't know what I was doing. I was reading lots of things, but some of it was confusing. So I actually gave you guys a call and, and talked to someone a couple of times, and it was very helpful. So great, good, good. I think that's the big thing for people listening is if you haven't done food, if you haven't tried food blots before, I, you know, you know, as we've mentioned, they can be a little intimidating, but you just have to try it. And whether you know, no, no matter what you try, whatever product it is, you know, just go out there and, and give it a shot. And I think you know, just taking that first step will then help you tremendously moving forward. Just. Just go out Absolutely. there. Absolutely. And remember what I said when I first started this thing. It's supposed to be fun. It's not supposed to be a pain. And it's not hard. It's a step-by-step thing. And once you get into it, all of a sudden you'll have pieces fall together and you go, oh, okay, that's what. That's why that goes that way. Easy, it's simple to do, and it's fun, and you've got the resources to help you do it right. So, uh, and, and plus, and think about this too, by planting food plots, you know, we need to get on our high horse more about this. Uh, you know, sure, you know, we're hunting deer. We're hunting turkeys. That's why we're planting food plots. Uh, but when you plant food plots, it's helping a lot more than deer and turkeys. It's helping every bit of wildlife out there. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we're doing a lot more uh, for, for wildlife than, uh, than folks who, uh, who proclaim to do so and yet don't devote any of their money or any of their time to any sort of, uh, any sort of uh, wildlife, uh, you know, benefit. So, you know, if you're thinking about getting started in food plots, congratulations. You're my kind of person, and my hat's off to you. And uh, Give yourself a round of applause because you deserve it. Absolutely. I think that's, that's how I feel. That's a, that just makes all sense in the world. There's a lot to it, and there's a lot of incredible rewards. And I've just, uh, you know, I've come to really enjoy it. And my goal in the next year or two is that hopefully I'll convince my co host, Dan, to find a way to, to try one out too because I think he'd enjoy it. So <laughs> I think he would. So, John, if yeah, people... But, but tell him, warning, it's, 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 uh, it's like hunting crack. Once you get started <laughs> doing it, it's like, oh, crap, i got to try this next. Yeah, it's probably not what you... Dan, you probably don't need one more added addiction related to deer hunting, do you? Oh, yeah. Let me just tell my wife, hey, baby, I'm going to be gone uh, a couple extra weekends a year to do food plots. Uh-huh. She'll be like, uh-huh. Oh, are, yeah, that'll go Are they going like to be in the backyard? Balloon, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's funny. <laughs> 
so well, so John, for people that want to learn more about what you guys are doing at Whitetail Institute, where can they go online to get that information? Yeah, uh, you can go to www.whitetailinstitute.com, just all written out, Whitetail Institute. Uh, one little thing uh, that's on it that's kind of neat, is we were talking about forages uh, earlier, what decide what to plant. And my brain, the way it works is kind of strange. I, I started thinking about it one day. I mean, I can look at a food plot, and I know in, in a microsecond what I'm going to plant there. I'm going, well, how do I know that? And then I realized what I'm doing is I'm really going through a mental flow chart and basically uh, taking all these forages and throwing them in a bucket, and then I run through a series of questions, um, and then I'm throwing out, throwing things out of the bucket, calling them out. And when I get to the end of the questions, I have exactly what I want, what I should plant in that plot for that soil type, that slope, that equipment access, uh, what you want it to do in performance as far as your overall system goes. And so I sat down and I wrote a little, uh, a little program, a little PowerPoint program that the smart people were able to put on, put on the computer. But it's a product selector up at the top. You can go through and go through it one side at a time. It'll ask you three or four questions, and you just punch a yes-no button, and then at the end of it, it spits out one or more of, uh, of our products that are, that are made for your capabilities, what you can do, uh, you know, access with equipment to that plot, and what you want it to do. Very cool. Well, I'm going to make sure to add a link to that on the blog post for this podcast. And um, this has been great, John. I think we've all been able to learn a thing or two, and I bet you there's a few people that have been inspired to give it a try too. So, so thank you for that, and thanks for joining us today. Oh man, my pleasure. I'm I'm glad to do this, and I'm especially glad to do it with you guys. That uh, I've had the pleasure of heading up there uh you know anything north of tennessee is the arctic so i've been up there to the <laughs> arctic where you are and you guys really uh, provide a great service uh, with your information and uh we, we just we just really enjoy working with you guys well we appreciate it john and uh, we wish you the best of luck this hunting season thank you sir all right well have a good one we'll talk soon okay all right well that is going to be a wrap for us here today on the wired to hunt podcast I hope you guys all learned a few things about fall food plots, and like I mentioned earlier, I hope that some of you guys are going to give it a shot. I definitely will be using this uh, in my food plot projects here coming up in the next couple weeks. They're going to be they're going to be interesting. Um, going to have some challenges, but nonetheless, learn some things here I can apply, and I hope you did too. A couple other updates before we wrap things up. First, remember we do have the Instagram contest going on. If you post a cool hunting photo. On Instagram, using the hashtag Wired to Hunt Wednesday, you'll have a chance at winning a Wired Hunt decal or some other cool product. Uh, last week, I think, or the week before, we gave away a Trophy Ridge static stabilizer, so that was pretty awesome. Uh, we've given away a number of decals already too, so make sure you're posting your hunting photos on Wednesdays using hashtag Wired to Hunt Wednesday. Um, I want to just thank everyone who has left reviews on iTunes. We really appreciate that. Thank you so much for sharing your real, true feedback. We, we love hearing that. We want to know what you think about the show. We want to know what you think we should improve or change. We're always trying to make sure we make this as great as it possibly can for you all. So thanks for that feedback. Um, if you're not subscribed yet, definitely recommend you do that on iTunes or Stitcher. That's the way to go. Get your podcast easily on your phone or your iPad or whatever device you're using. It's easy, it's fast, you'll get it downloaded right away on Thursday morning. So make sure you do that. I think that's really all we needed to uh, we needed to cover. Of course, we do want to thank our partners who help make the Wired to Hunt podcast possible. So big thank you to Sick of Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, 
Ozonics, Carbon Express, Lacrosse Boots, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. Please help the Wired Hunt Podcast by supporting these companies and letting them know that you enjoy this podcast. That means a lot, and it helps them understand you know, whether or not it's worth working with us, and I hope it is. So thank you for doing that in advance. But finally, most importantly, and what I always say every week, and what I really truly mean is that we want to thank you. You guys and gals are why we do this podcast. It means the world that so many of you listen in and enjoy it and look forward to it every week. So, so thanks for that. Thanks for spending some time with us. And as we say every week, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.